it's fascinating. Like, respect Trump's harmony was our mantra in Antarctica. I think I said it, I don't know, 10 times a day. And what it meant was I didn't want a culture where people would paper over or ignore important issues because my two fears were someone exploding with anger or someone spiralling with depression because I had no ability to deal with either scenario. And I thought, okay, so how do I create an environment where people speak up and deal with stuff, we sort it and we move on. So respect Trump's harmony became the mantra and it really meant if you've got something to say, say it, speak up and we'll talk about it as adults and we'll deal with it and we'll sort this out. Hi, this is Julie Hyde. Thanks for joining me on Making Account, a podcast dedicated to inspiring leaders and business owners to be even better leaders, to create a great culture, empower their people and be more productive. So let's get into it. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you as a guest. I've known you ever since you launched your your first book, having you as a speaker at Leaders and Lattes back in 2013, I think. And and now to chat to you just after the launch of your second book, Respect Trump's Harmony. So I'm really excited to jump into our chat. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It'd be great. Yeah. So I'd love for you to firstly share with our listeners a little bit about your journey and how you've got to where you are today. <laughs> and, and I'd love to say it was a, a strategic career <laughs> move, but it wasn't. Anyone who's heard me present will know that it was just an opportunity that came away that I was reading the newspaper one day and I saw a job advertised for a station leader in Antarctica. And what intrigued me was that the Antarctic Division recruits for quality. So they recruit for resilience, empathy and integrity. You don't need to know anything technical about Antarctica because they figure we can teach you the technical, but we can't teach you resilience in three months of training. And I read that and I thought, what a fantastic way to recruit people. I was managing a customer service team at the time and I was struggling to recruit people with empathy, which is a bit of an issue in customer service. You yeah. want people who have empathy. And so I saw the, the ad and I thought, what a brilliant way to recruit. What a, you know awesome idea. So I had this idea where I'd apply for the job and get to the interview stage so I could find out what the questions were they were using and I could copy them and bring them back to my role. Uh, it was only after I'd posted off my application, this was back in the day when you had to mail it, um, posted off my application and I find out they don't have an interview. They have a week-long boot camp in the Central Highlands of Tasmania. So I end up on this boot camp for a week with 13 men competing for a job that at that stage I still didn't particularly want. And then halfway through the week I started to think, you know what, this this would actually be really fun. This would be a real adventure. And lo and behold, they offered, offered me the job. They rang and offered me the job. And I thought, you know what, I'd rather regret what I did and regret what I didn't do. And that was my whole thinking in taking the job. I thought I'd rather go down there and think, oh, what have you done, than not do it and spend the rest of my life wondering what if, what would have happened if I'd done that Antarctic expedition. I had no idea it would change my life so so massively, um, which it has. It's changed every aspect of my life, my career, my family, everything is a result. But it really was an opportunity that came away and I thought I'm going to have a crack at this and ended up living there for a year with my team. Uh, So in summer we have 120 people on the station and it's all our scientists doing climate change research. So it's busy, it's fun, it's exciting, there's planes, there's helicopters, uh, it's really fun. And then they go home 
in February and a core group of about 18 of us remain behind through winter and we maintain the station. They're mostly tradespeople and we keep the place running, keep it warm, uh, keep the lights on until the next summer. And so it's quite a different role for the leader in summer and winter. So summer's very much operations and very much tasking resources to different projects, whereas winter is a lot much more, a lot more around uh, leading through difficult times, leading through isolation and just keeping morale up through nine months of darkness, knowing that we can't come out, we can't get out of it. So it was a steep learning curve. But, yeah, I, I loved every minute, <laughs> strangely. <laughs> It's such a phenomenal story. It's like, could you do anything, you know, any more extreme, I think, <laughs> than living in Antarctica for a year? And like you say, like coming down from being with 120 people to 18 yeah. and you are it in terms of like you are everything. You, you are the the politician, you're the policeman, you're the judge, you're the jury. It's like everything when you're down there solo with your team. Yeah, it's a a 24-hour-a-day job for a year. Like there's just even even if you're not technically at work, say Sunday afternoon in winter we don't tend to work, uh, like a formal work, I'm still the leader. Like I can't take that leadership hat off and say I'm not going to be a leader this afternoon. I'm going to yeah. have a few wines and relax and whinge about head office. Like you can't do that. So your, your body language, you know, your optimism, I have to be really careful if I was feeling homesick about how I'd handle that and, and just be mindful of my own, be really self-aware of my own feelings and my own energy levels and look after myself as much as looking after the team and particularly we had a um, we had a plane crash in summer so we had a, a bolt sheared off the landing gear and it stranded four of my people 500 kilometers away and I'm I was in charge of the search and rescue and I've never done anything like that in my life so in my head my head is like oh my goodness what do I do here but if I had gone out to my team and said, and they said, what's going on? And I said, oh, I don't know. I've never managed a search and rescue in Antarctica. That wouldn't instill confidence in the team and optimism in the team. So I had to be really careful at that period that I chose my words carefully. I, I'd say, yes, I have concerns. I'm not worried because they're different words and they yeah. can have a different meaning. Uh, my body language had to be very poised, very calm, even though I felt erratic and I felt full of energy and adrenaline. I had to be very poised and calm. I had to be visible was the other thing. Like My, my natural instinct was to stay and, and manage the search and rescue. But if I wasn't seen about the place, then people would start to wonder what was going on. So I had to make sure I didn't skip meals and then I went out and was seen and also communicate. Like every probably every two hours I sent a message out to the team saying this is where we're at, uh, this is our plans, nothing has changed since the last update, uh, we still anticipate we'll get them back by day three or four, but just putting information out because otherwise people fill in the gaps themselves and sometimes the gap, their gap fillers are worse than the reality. So just learning so much about leading through a crisis when you're yeah. in it, like there was no playbook, I had no one I could turn to, like a there was no one else on station I could talk to and say, well, what do you reckon? So it was really just a matter of me going, okay, let's try something. And if it didn't work, okay, we'll try something else. And the thing that helped with that was keeping a journal and writing in the journal Well, two reasons. One, it got the emotion out, so it meant I could sleep. So rather than stressing and worrying about things in my head at 3 o'clock in the morning, I actually wrote things out and it was cathartic. It meant I was going to sleep without all this emotion. But the second thing, I could actually read it back and work out 
what I'd got wrong uh, because I had no one tapping me on the shoulder going, oh, you got that wrong. But I could reflect on what I'd written in my journal and try to understand, well, why, why did that happen? Why is that reaction? That's not what I would have thought to happen. And just actually reflecting on my own leadership because I had, yeah, no one tapping me on the shoulder saying you got that wrong. And that was yeah. the only way to learn was to that self-reflection. Mm. That's incredibly powerful. And I suppose, you know, listening to what you're talking about um, in terms of what you went through back then is a little bit similar to what leaders are going through now in terms of managing a crisis, maybe not so extreme in that we're, you know, so cut off from everything and everyone that we're used to. But I know you explained in your book where you were taken away from all of the creature comforts and it was very uncomfortable um, while you were down there. Um, and now, you know, we've all sort of been cut off from our comforts of life, our normality. Uh, we can't just do what we want to do anymore. And um, leaders are having to lead the team through this. And I really um, love what you said about being visible and in terms of your body language and being careful of the language that you use. So are these some of the tips that you would advise leaders to be using now in the current situation with, with their team, particularly when people are, are experiencing so much uncertainty and so much fear? Mm -hmm. And like you say, when we're not hearing um, things consistently, um, people are often filling in the gaps and catastrophizing things around this COVID nineteen. I'd love to. I'd love some tips. <laughs> and I think whether you're leading a business or leading a team professionally or leading at home, uh, I'm applying mm. the same rules here at home. That with my son, I'm very calm. Um, I might say to my husband privately, "Gee, this this is." not looking good or, gee, this could go on for a few months. But yeah. to my 10-year-old boy, I say, look, we'll get through this. Whatever happens, we'll get through it. There will be an end. We don't know when, but we'll be, it'll be there. And just trying to keep the poise for him so that he doesn't catastrophize and, and worry his little head because he doesn't need to be worrying as a 10-year-old about this stuff because the important thing I'm trying to instill in him is to control what you can control. And I think that's what got me through in Antarctica was just to, to focus on what I can control. I can't control the shipping schedule. So when we got the message that the uh, ship returning us was potentially going to be four months late, and which would mean another, uh, so it was coming at the end of the season rather than the start, which would mean another Christmas away from our families. My team and even myself and my team, we were really good at being able to say, well, we can't control that. We have no control over that. So let's not think about it because we can't control it. What we can control is what we're doing today in the next hour, in the next few hours, in the next week. And that, that keeping, understanding what you can control was really important. The other couple of tools that we used that were really important was uh, one was no triangles. And no triangles is just I don't speak to you about Julie. If I have something to say to Julie, I go direct to Julie. And you don't take it to a third party. And the benefit of it was it built respect in the team, but it meant when you're under pressure, like we all are now, and in a stressful situation, the last thing you need to be thinking about is somebody at work whinging about you behind your back. You really don't need that. You've got enough on your plate. You don't need that. So by getting the team together and saying, right, how are we going to build resilience in this team? How are we going to build trust in a team, given that we were completely different people? I didn't recruit the team. I just got given them. Uh, completely different people. How are we going to build trust? Okay, let's Let's have no triangles. And I actually got them to put, put their hands in the air 
and commit to no triangles, which meant that the idea of getting the hand in the air is that I could pin them to it, I could hold them to it. So if they came running to me saying, oh, Julie said this to me, I could say, well, why are you telling me? I saw you put your hand up and commit to no triangles, so you go and talk to her about it. And it really built trust in the team. And I think any team, like I had someone ask me recently what I'd do differently in my career and I said, gosh, I would have done no triangles 20 years ago. You know, I would have got the reputation when I started out not to, don't, don't bother whinging to Rachel about someone because she'll just tell you I no triangles. So that was the yeah. first one. The other yeah. really important one, which has relevance now, is I talk about the bacon wars, which oh. it started off as a fight about whether bacon should be soft or crispy. And I did the, um, the five whys, the, the root cause analysis, as they call it in, in management speak, but it was just five why, like why, 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 and I got to the bottom of it. And it turns out that the relationship between these two teams, between my plumbers and my desert mechanics, had broken down over the years use of a vehicle and they thought the other team was deliberately cooking the bacon the opposite way to what they wanted just to irritate them so one team wanted it soft one wanted it crispy and they thought the other team's deliberately cooking it the opposite way just to irritate us and I had this this moment where I realized wow that's actually not about bacon that's about respect they're feeling disrespected so I started identifying all of these bacon wars and we've, we've done some research on it but the number one bacon war in most Australian workplaces is, is, is actually dirty coffee mugs Dirty tea rooms and that um, yeah. you know, <laughs> that sign that says your mother doesn't work here, put your dishes in the dishwasher. And it's like, wow, that's actually not about coffee mugs. It's about respect. It's about the assumption that my time's more important than your time, so I'm going to leave my stuff lying around and you can pick up after me. And I started finding all these other bacon ones. And why it's so pertinent today is if you're sharing space at home, which all of us are, uh, if you're particularly sharing an office, you, you need to have that conversation really early and, and lay down the boundaries and work out your bacon wars because it's it's already we're living on top of each other like like we were in Antarctica. So if you can eliminate those sources of irritation and, and disrespect, like for example, my my husband and I are sharing an office here and he's a consultant so he's exuberant he's on the phone he's talking whereas I'm an author so I'm I need quiet when I'm writing and there's just no way we could share the same space all day so we had to come to arrangements you know who would have it in the morning and who would have it in the afternoon and work it out and and same as uh, common areas in a house if you've got family of three or four or five living together you just can't have people leaving their stuff lying around in the lounge room where others trip over it because we've all got to share that space at the moment so Keep your bedrooms however you want to keep your bedrooms, but in common areas where we've got to share space, you really need to understand that leaving stuff lying around could be considered disrespectful or could be perceived by someone as disrespectful. So when they get all angsty about it and you're thinking, oh, gosh, it's just towels on the floor, it's not towels on the floor. It's implying that your time is more important than someone else's who's going to pick up those towels. And I think today more than ever we need to have those conversations early and get in front and circumvent some of those bacon wars. Yes, I love that. I do love the bacon wars. It sort of gives a little bit, it touches a bit of the comedy to something that is really serious and it's a root cause to breaking down relationships because I think in any workplace the kitchen is an issue. Yeah. So... The beauty of the term bacon wars, once you explain it to someone, you say, you know, whether people like bacon soft or crispy, explain the scenario behind it about disrespect. It's a really gentle circuit breaker. So if you're working with someone who's been doing something for years, even months, it's really driving you bonkers, but you're not sure how to raise the issue. Instead of saying, 
what is the dysfunctional behaviour that affects this team, you can actually say, like, what are our bacon wars? What are the things you think that might irritate or bug people that we need to eradicate and solve right now so that we can focus on what we should be focusing on uh, rather than wasting time and energy on these these small things that we can actually sort out today? And so it's a, it's a gentle language and it's a common yes. language. All teams can use the language. It's not confronting and it's just a gentle way of saying, right, what are, what are the behaviours that we may not agree on? Yes. Yeah. Love it. Great tips. Thanks, Rachel. Now, amongst your many, many achievements, you know, obviously leading the expedition to Antarctica is a massive one and would have meant that you had to dig really, really deep in terms of your self-belief and confidence to actually be successful for the role. But you were also the youngest um, chief ranger at yep. um, in the Victorian National Park. So I'm just really curious, where has this fierce determination come from? Because it's like once you set your mind to something, you just you just do it. Yeah, it's funny because I, I had to research that for the first book, uh, Leading on the Edge, to try and understand this pattern of behaviour. <laughs> it started really young. Even, even uni, I was 17 and I went off to uni in Warrnambool, which is 300 kilometres away from home. I didn't know anyone just decided I liked the idea of the course down there and decided to enrol down there. And so, and then I've moved jobs ever since like every couple of years, I'll move house and, and try a new job just to get new skills. And I tried to understand, and it was really interesting that we, when I was talking to some the biographer who was helping me sort of shape it in my head, we went back to year 11 it was, and our English teacher set a, it was an assignment to choose a song and deconstruct the song, so deconstruct the rhythm and the words and the, the verses and the patterns of, it was actually English literature, um, so the prose, understanding prose. And Midnight Oil were huge at the moment, at that time, so I chose a song by Midnight Oil called Power and the Passion and because I was 16 and they were, you know, all over the charts at the time. And in that song there's a lyric that says, it's better to die on your feet than to live on your knees. And I'm getting goosebumps even relaying that story. That lyric hit me hard as a 16-year-old girl and I thought, wow, wow, what a great way to live your life, to, to die on your feet then live on your knees. So go out there and just have a crack and regret what you did, don't regret what you didn't do. And I think that's that's been a part of my DNA ever since that time and it really is just a matter of understanding, even even through the really difficult times, knowing... Mm. And we all, we all go through difficult times and we've all got through them. And so for me, I use that as a cognitive skill. I say, right, you've got through difficult times, you'll get through this one. And it's about that going back to what I can control. And then the other thing I do in those really difficult times where I have to dig deep is to work out what, what can I do in the next hour, what do I do in the next week, and bring it down because, for example, in Antarctica, like it was overwhelming, like nine months of total darkness where we, we, we can't get out. Even if we're dying, you can't land a plane there. So we just physically can't get out. If I had looked at that in March and April and gone, wow, I'm with this team who, who didn't, half of them didn't like each other, uh, and I'm with this team now till October, like that's overwhelming. So it was okay. It's now March. What can we do to celebrate the end of March? What can we do to celebrate Easter? And just building momentum and breaking it down. And I've done that everywhere I went. Like when I've had to move to country towns like Ballarat or Mildura, I've moved there for work. Didn't know a soul. And if I'd thought about it, 
thought about the overwhelmingness of moving to a place where you don't know anyone, that would, would have been pretty overwhelming. So I broke it down. So, right, first thing I'd do is get a house, uh, you know, find a place to rent a house, then work out what furniture I need, then, you know, get my car down there and just breaking it down. And, and that really helps when you, you need to dig deep. But right. I think, it's, yeah, it's just been something that's been a part of me for a young age. But it was really fascinating to understand how important some pivotal moments are in your life it just sort of blew me away for me it was a song but I think for other people it might be that someone might have a conversation with them or they'll hear something on a podcast or they'll hear something on radio just there's something that just clinks you know it just it just you know people just hear it and it just sort of goes this big epiphany and clunk and, and sticks with them forever and that's what it was for me at a very impressionable age I was yeah. lucky to hear that at 16 yeah yeah yeah, I love that song. I still love like <laughs> <Good> Royal. <laughs> <laughs> Big fan back then, probably still Ooh, am yeah. to Ooh, a point. Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm really, really keen to touch on your new book, Respect Trump's Harmony, and it speaks very loudly to me, and I'm sure that it will to all of our people pleasers in the world who have been told, you know, it's much better to be respected than liked. But I love the catch cry which is, you know, why being liked is overrated and constructive conflict gets results. So can you give us a little bit of an insight and a sneak peek into what your book's all about? Oh, it, it's, uh, it's fascinating. Like, Respect Trump's Harmony was our mantra in Antarctica. Mm. I think I said it, I don't know, 10 times a day. And what it meant was I didn't want a culture where people would paper over or ignore important issues because my two fears were someone exploding with anger or someone spiralling with depression because I had no ability to deal with either scenario. And I thought, okay, so how do I create an environment where people speak up and deal with stuff, we sort it and we move on? So Respect Trump's Harmony became the mantra and it really meant if you've got something to say, say it, speak up and we'll talk about it as adults and we'll deal with it and we'll sort this out because you don't want things festering away. And oh. I was worried because I think three things happen. When we focus on harmony and keeping the peace, three things happen. Uh, firstly, any bullying or harassment still goes on. It, it just goes underground because people want to raise it as an issue. They don't, they don't want to be the one to rock the harmony boat, so people yeah. won't raise it. Um, secondly, you, you won't have innovation. If you've got such a focus on harmony and keeping the peace, no one will put their hand up and say, oh, I've got a different idea or a conflicting idea or a different view because, again, they don't want to rock the boat. And thirdly, most importantly, when you focus on harmony, that's when people get hurt. So either physically or mentally, people turn a blind eye to someone doing something unsafe. And it's why we have royal commissions as well. People turn a blind eye to someone doing something wrong. Uh, they, they don't want to step in. And equally, mental health. Uh, if the culture is, isn't it wonderful here and it's fantastic and we're all one big happy family, no one will put their hand up and go, actually, I'm not okay today. I'm not okay right now. And I thought this is just an illusion, these teams that are built just on harmony. When they're put under pressure, they'll shatter under pressure. It's much better to be able to talk about issues and, you know, as, as professional adults and as, you know, with a bit of compassion. And so what we did was uh, for this book, we went back to 200 teams that have implemented No Triangles and Bacon Wars. So 200 teams across corporate, not-for-profit, a lot of hospitals and schools, uh, a few volunteer groups, a few fire brigades. And we asked them, I wanted to quantify how it worked. I knew it did work because I'd get emails from people saying, look, we've done No Triangles and it's changed our, our work completely. And I wanted to quantify it. So we put out a survey to 200 teams that are already doing it and we said, tell us what worked, tell us what didn't work, what's the result? 
And of the 200 teams that we surveyed, 100% of the 200 said it improved morale and it built respect in the team. And another 100% said, yep, it uh, created greater innovation. But the, the statistic that really blew me away was 89% of the teams said it freed up time and energy. And in a third of those cases, it was up to an hour a day. So you imagine an hour a day people have spent listening to these conversations and it's exhausting. They're not going anywhere. There's just people whinging. They just want someone else to agree with their whinging. And if you take that out of the equation, if you have a culture where we speak up and we don't have the triangles, you will free up to an hour a day in in some cases. But in 89% of cases, it freed up time and energy. And so it just blew me away to be able to quantify the impact of having a culture where respect trumps harmony. And I fought really hard for for the word Trump. You can imagine the connotation at the moment. (laughs) We had quite a few conversations with my uh, publisher and I said there's just no other word that has the same nuance. I'm not saying that uh, you don't need harmony. You do. No one wants to work in an environment where it's not harmonious, but I'm saying when push comes to shove, when you've got two, you have to, choose then respect should trump harmony and i think it's just a great great mantra to live by that if we can speak up and create an environment people do speak up and don't worry so much about people liking you all the time because it's not going to happen particularly as a leader you will have to make decisions sometimes that some people will not like and that's just a fact so being able to have the respect trumps harmony culture is really important and so the book yeah it came out of a result of research it was 15 years of just research and just wondering well what is it why does it work and, and equally why didn't it work so in a couple of cases it didn't work and the main there were two main uh, barriers one was people's ability or skill in having that conversation which yeah. you know we can we can send them off to a course on how to have a difficult conversation but the second issue was if the leaders don't embrace the culture so if the leaders say yep we'll have no triangles and they're really just saying i don't want to i don't want to listen to you and lead you and then they're the leaders are actually whinging about other people or whinging about other leaders and, and complaining about them behind their back then the whole thing will fall over so it really the leaders have to lead by example and themselves do not do not complain or whinge about another leader in your team yeah. so yeah it was a fascinating process that one yeah i'm really looking forward to reading it so um and you know getting the tips from that because it is something that i find sometimes is very prevalent in smaller business where um you know you've got this smaller team and she that they all want to get along because they're all quite close and um they often refer to themselves as family which Mm um i'm not a massive fan of because you know we are supposed to accept our family warts and all whereas I don't think that's healthy in a work environment so yeah it's, it's an interesting dynamic in small business particularly franchise business we found this that like in a small franchise team where you might have a husband and wife and they have two or three people working underneath them which you know makes sense if you're growing a business that you need to get out of the operations and start thinking of the strategy so you employ operational managers but one of the behaviors we found and and, uh, no triangles will stop this is answer shopping so you go to one person in the business and say can I do this and that person says no and then you go to the other person You, you know you shop around and you keep asking the same question until you get the answer that you want like like children do like yes yeah 
<laughs> Mum says no, so they go to dad. Yeah. And we, we found all these examples of where that had happened. And so uh, retail was a classic where retail staff had asked for time off in January where the, the managers had said we don't have annual leave in January. It's our busiest month of the year. So the staff had then gone to the owners of the – it was a uh, franchise uh, fast-moving consumer good, I'll, I won't name it, but uh, so they've gone to the owners and said, can we have leave in January? And the owners have said, yeah, yeah, why not? And so, you know, that that totally disempowered that manager. They ended up leaving because it just caused so much friction with the rest of the team about, you know, why are they having leave and now we have to cover their leave in January and we're already working long shifts because it's busy. Uh, you know, we're selling fast food and it was it was um, interesting. So there's a lot of research we can we can provide to around small teams about the importance yeah. of, of no triangles absolutely yeah. yeah love it so can you tell us how can we get in contact with you i noticed you've got the book bundle on your website which is great to grab both of your books um how can we get in touch with you yeah, we're ready, ready and standing by. Um, <laughs> we're not going anywhere for a, for a couple of months. Uh, so the best thing is through my website, which is just rachelrobertson.com. I, I couldn't think of anything more creative at the time. So <laughs> it's, uh, just rachelrobertson.com. And, yeah, shoot, shoot us a message. We're, we're doing a lot of uh, remote delivery of keynotes and, and workshops and also packaging up workshops so you can do it yourself with your team. Uh, we'll give you all the facilitator guide and the handouts and the slides and, and step you through it. So uh but the the yeah the probably the bright spark for us at the moment is it is, is it's me- meant i've had to get creative and start thinking about how to deliver the leadership and training leadership and development leadership and teamwork development that i do uh remotely and so yeah, yeah. We're, we're standing by and we've got a heap of stuff to help people a lot of free resources on the website too if you're looking for stuff to get you through COVID 19 we've got a few uh tips and tools that are free there on the website as well Yes, I noticed that. That's awesome. A really great resource. And I'll share the links out with the podcast notes cool, um, so everyone can just click on that. So that's that's easy. So I've loved chatting with you, Rachel, and I do have one final question for you, which I like to ask everyone, um, which is how do you feel you're making it count? Because that's in line with you know what our podcast is called or how, how would you like to be remembered? Yeah, good one. Um, I would I would love to think that there's a woman somewhere listening to this aged in her thirties or forties and just thinking, you know, having the time now to look at look at her life and think, wow, I wonder if this is where I plan to end up or I wonder if this is where I really wanted to be and something might have happened. You know, you might have been laid off work or a separation. I would love that woman to hear me speak and think reflect back to I was 36 years old when I saw the ad in a newspaper. So I guess my message is you don't know what's around the corner and no one knows what's around the corner. Be ready for opportunity. Be ready to regret what you did. Don't regret what you didn't do and just know that there's something there. Just be ready for the opportunity and I think that would, that would I'd, I'd finish my innings on a happy note. If, it, if that was my legacy, I'd be stoked with that. Yeah, fantastic. And thanks for sharing it. It's such wise words there, particularly for, you know, women who are listening and all reading your story to go into depth into that quite significantly in Leading on the Edge. So I, I haven't had a chance to read your new book yet, but will be very soon. So, Rachel, thank you so much for being part of Making It Count and thank you so much for your generosity. And I look forward to what's next for, for you. Absolutely. Thank you for your time too and thanks for having me. It's been fun. Yeah. Thanks, Rachel. Pleasure. 
Thanks for listening. And I hope that you have gained some great ideas and feel inspired to get out there and make what you do count for your leadership, your business, and your life. Please do leave a review for this podcast and please share it with your network. Send any feedback or suggestions for future guests by emailing me, julie at juliehide.com.au. For now, let's get out there and make it count.